0: Welcome, dear listener, to this, the second of five in our anti-prejudice box set. Just as a reminder, I put this mini-series together as a response to an advert for a course that was to be provided by the Royal College of Psychiatry that showed some astonishingly prejudicial attitudes towards people labelled with a personality disorder. I'll read the sacred text at the start of each of the podcasts in the Prejudice box set, just so we can ensure its words are at the forefront of our minds as we listen to some of the prejudice my guest Naomi has experienced in its name. Naomi is a great friend of mine who literally saved my life around 15 years ago when I, was, when I just about lost everything to this mental malady that has been given the label of borderline personality disorder. I lost my home, my job, my family, and I was homeless. I was seeing a psychiatrist once every three months while I waited for psychotherapy to start. A wait that ended up lasting about two years. Despite my suicidal ideation at the time, I was placed in oxymoron homeless accommodation in a third floor flat with windows that opened wide enough for me to throw a fully sized cow through. Had I owned one. Just as anybody would, I looked up everything concerning my diagnosis on the interweb. What I found was mainly horrible and judgmental, except, well, except I found a group of people with a personality disorder label who met up regularly in Edinburgh in one of the fabulous cafes they have up there. I told my psychiatrist the great news that not only were there people like me, they were meeting up. Okay, they were doing it under the disguise of the Meadows book group, but they were there. You mustn't meet up with them, my psychiatrist declared. These are very sick people. I momentarily thought, hey, I resemble that remark, as I was punched in the face with the blatant prejudice that comes free with the label of personality disorder for the first time. The same prejudice and discrimination that continues to this day. The group organized by Naomi were able to remind me that I had some value, that I had some contribution that I could make to the world, that I wasn't just the sum of my deficits, that had led to me losing everything. You will hear what an amazing person Naomi is, how she's worked hard for 16 years to work with mental health professionals to break down some, some of the hatred and ignorance we regularly encounter. Just to reiterate, this course advert is just the tip of a toxic iceberg. It is the manifestation of structures that have been allowed to fester like a bacterial culture in a Petri dish. Personality Disorder, PD, is a thorn in the flesh of many clinicians as, however they wish to avoid managing those with such a diagnosis, those with a a personality disorder label have a tenacious hold on the clinician. While only a small minority of PD patients actively seek treatment, although often in a dysfunctional manner, the majority avoid contact with health professionals but nonetheless cause considerable distress both to themselves and those around them. The uncertain nature of PD diagnosis and the unproven nature of its treatment results in psychiatrists being damned if they do, i.e. getting involved and then being blamed for the subsequent outcome, and damned if they don't, i.e. avoiding responsibility and hence being blamed for the subsequent outcome. This course is aimed to equip clinicians with a rational and defensive approach to the management of this group. I won't read out the course objectives here because since the foundations of the course are clearly built on prejudicial hatred any learning they claim to offer is utterly invalid so who was the course aimed at general psychiatrist in the main but variants of this have been well received by other mental health professionals such as psychologists mental health nurses social workers etc these are the same professionals remember who did nothing when they were presented with this shocking prejudice. Only one of you had the decency to alert the world to this. I'm not ready to receive Dr. Adrian James's apology yet, where you'll recall he promised a course built from start to finish using co-production with people with a lived experience of lugging around the label of personality disorder, their carers and their families. First of all, I don't want a course bestowed upon me by my assailant It feels a lot like a mugger getting a pang of conscience before returning to his victim to give them some money for the bus. I don't want a course unless it's developed by us, run by us and is fully funded by you, where we decide who we co-produce with. A course that, once it's developed, is mandatory for anyone who will be working with people with a label of personality disorder, including psychiatry, all medicine, Mental health nursing, general nursing, psychology, social work, occupational therapy, the police and anyone involved in the criminal justice system, teachers and, of course, anyone employed by the Department of Work and Pensions. You say you want co-production from critical thinkers, but we were promised this over nine years ago with the publication of No Longer a Diagnosis of Exclusion. Since then, we've endured cuts in services, an ongoing undercurrent of prejudice where we're told we're attention-seeking and manipulative, where you've weaponized the concept of capacity, telling us we have capacity when we experience suicidal ideation and behavior in some bizarre act of back-protecting, where the latest international classification of diseases, the ICD-11, makes things infinitely worse for people with a personality disorder label, where systems like the high-intensity network we're allowed to flourish, where a culture of institutional prejudice emboldens bigots to produce hateful courses. We don't need a course. We need radical and lasting change.
1: Hi, this is Naomi. I've known Naomi for 15, 16 years now. At least,
2: yeah. yeah. Well, uh, just, and and, just... and I, th-
1: I think you know it's not too much of an exaggeration and, and you probably won't agree, but tough shit. Um, <laughs> you saved my life. Um, yeah, at a time when I just received the label of borderline personality disorder and I had absolutely no idea where to go with it or what to do with it, uh, you valued me as a human being and got me involved in all kinds of stuff that, that made me realise that I had something to contribute to the world. So I think it's really important that I, I got your your view on on what this uh, advert for a course on the Royal College of Psychiatry's, um, uh well, was it? Their website or is it? It was it was a circular that, that was that had that went to people's um, yeah. emails. So, what 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 are your thoughts?
2: Well, I think first of all, I just want to say that's quite an accolade, <laughs> and thank you very much. And I've had exactly the same from you in spades. It's been a very reciprocal and mutual. Um, friendship. I, I, so I'm very glad to have met you as well. And obviously that's been like over half our lives because we are still quite spring. We children. are,
1: absolutely, yes. So <laughs> <laughs> <I would. laughs>
2: um, yeah, so the advert. So, yeah, I think, to be honest, like, I, I, my first response was just like, I'm tired. I am tired of this. Um, as you said, it's been 15 plus years since we met. And my job then was to run a collective advocacy project. For people with a personality disorder diagnosis and develop training that was led by people with that diagnosis and deliver it to professionals and try to effect change and it just feels like nothing has changed um you know i've been doing that kind of work for the past 15 years now the now i have more more specialism in specifically around self-harm but obviously a lot of people who um attract a pd diagnosis use self-harm so you and um, that ends up being a subject for discussion. And I think it's just, I'm just tired. It, you know, people say that things are changing, but I can't see it on the ground. I really can't see it in frontline services. I think what I find extremely frustrating is that there's an expectation um, that there's some sort of discussion as if it's a, it's acceptable to be a discussion that people like us who have this label whether we whether we should be treated with hostility and contempt and disdain whether we should be by people who are supposed to be providing care how is that a discussion how is that an acceptable discussion at all it's you know it's mystifying and I would say that that has not shifted in the time I've been working in this area and I think the other one thing that I find extremely frustrating and to to a fair degree pretty thoughtless is that if this discussion is allowed to be had, not that it should be a discussion in the first place and you're um, allowed into this discussion as somebody with the label, there's an expectation that everyone's sitting they are a professional front.
1: right right
2: And actually no, I' if I'm coming to this discussion, I think I'm, I'm lucky in a way in that I can sometimes hide behind my professional role, but actually you're talking people are not talking about a job. They're not talking about something that they can leave at the end of the day. Because no matter how committed and passionate you are in a job, it is not your life. It's not that your life depends on potentially this care at some point. Um, And you're expected, you're not allowed to get angry, you're not allowed to get upset, you're not allowed to be overly emotive. I have in meetings had to ask people to stop referring to people, at individual people as BPDs wow. and talk about them as people. Um, I have had to... Um, listen to all manner of ranting and really offensive stuff coming out with the minds of professionals Um, but they're apparently objective and if you get upset and annoyed you're not and it's seen as like symptomatic. So that's Um, a symptom of
1: your BPD and and not...
2: Yeah exactly you're doing that because you're this awkward difficult person Um, and I think um, you know what's what's really um, frustrating is Sorry, I completely forgot what, what, I, was, what I, I mean, I mean, what, one of the things you,
1: you were talking about was uh, the, the evidence that you're, uh, you, you give to these meetings is seen as mm. anecdotal and personal and it's not seen as, as...
2: Yes, absolutely. I think this is what I find really frustrating. And even when I worked in advocacy and my job was literally to go and talk to as many people as possible who had a PD diagnosis, you still get, oh, well, that's one person's experience or that's anecdotal. And yet, but yet, examples that professionals bring to meetings are not seen as anecdotal and I'm not sure how many of them are going out and surveying say 40 or 60 sure. people before sure. they come in to to a meeting about this kind of stuff so it's there's a lot of lip service and I think a lot of people think they are doing involvement and co-production and things but really there's a complete lack of thought um, it's always about being allowed into professional allowed spaces
0: into, yeah.
2: to like tell your tell your story i don't want to tell my story yeah. i don't really frankly it's it's kind of boring for me <laughs> now um and i don't know if you've heard of the concept of like trauma porn or the idea of like reeling people out to tell their story and it's also always going to be tied up nicely and it's you're recovered. yeah you
1: right? recovered now yeah this, yeah yes yeah.
2: great thing yeah. happened and i got the right treatment and now i'm fine actually no. Yeah even when i'm fine and functional there are still quite a bit a lot of bits in my life that are extremely hard, yeah, hard yeah. and really difficult and that i it's more about i've learned to live with that um and that's okay but i'm not going to wrap up in a nice bow for anybody um and i'm not going to pretend that it's great and i think it's ultimately there's this idea that oh it's a few bad apples but you know but actually there is a rotten core running through most mental health services yeah. of an incredibly uninformed and terrible attitude and to be honest it you can say oh it's bad people bad attitudes it's basically enshrined in policies and practices and approaches like about people with this diagnosis so they you know where is the actual evidence base for um some of the things that people do about you know minimal care or withdrawing care Ooh, or refusing yeah, hospital yeah, admission yeah. or refusing to prescribe medication Actually, this evidence base is not it's not big and it's not great. I mean, the, the hospitalization one thing is based on one paper written by somebody in Canada, right, right. which I don't think even has the same kind of system as us. And everything is stemmed from there when you dig down into it. The majority of people who end up with a PD label have also meet the diagnostic criteria for quite a lot of other mental health conditions. So actually, why would you not prescribe some medication to alleviate yeah, yeah, the distress yeah. that somebody's in? It, you know I, I find it really galling and just like i said i just feel just really fucking yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. when i see
2: people go oh this was a mistake i'm sorry we're sorry a bit, because actually the reality is and i've experienced this in the last six months myself the reality is that that is exactly what was in that advert is exactly how a lot of frontline staff think of you and respond to you and i'm talking about this in the position of having had the pd label rescinded diagnosed with something else and then when I the team that I was looking to for support went and looked in my notes till they found it, and then applied oh, that. Shit. Even though so, you had
1: re- to. It was removed and, and then left. reapplied. Oh,
2: I don't know if it was reapplied. But, but, I don't really know yeah, how yeah. because these people were coming to my house for twenty minutes twice a week, but went looking for something that suited, I guess, their view of me,
1: or their agenda, their,
2: how they wanted to approach it or their agenda. Um, And I know this for sure because later my, um, somebody from another team actually told me, oh yeah, they had you on the the EUPD pathway. I'm not entirely sure what that is because essentially it felt like they were treating me like I was just a bit crap at being an asthma and I needed to learn some life skills. And it's like, does it not occur to you that six months ago I was fully functional, I am married with a child, I have a mortgage and I run an organisation and suddenly I cannot do any of that you know oh but it's just me being a bit shit at being an adult it's me being a bit crap I don't have the life skills or something like that as opposed to being terrified about the you know damaging my child damaging my relationship with my husband um like losing my income because I ran out of sick pay but you know actually I'm it's because I'm just a bit pants at adulting it's like you know actually I've adulted in spite of a lot of
1: astonishing it's uh, just going back to the 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 advert itself Mm. um, one of the things we we, in our sort of pre-conversation conversation conversation, you were talking about how the the lovely president of the Royal College of Psychiatry had apologized and Mm -hmm. uh, that, that some people weren't ready to accept the apology and and there were, there were some responses around that. Do you, do you want to talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I think what I saw was I saw him um, offer a really a fulsome apology and that he was going to look into it. And I think that's, I don't think anyone was expecting any more than that. But quite a lot of people had commented that that's not going to be enough. Yeah. That apologising for something that happens every day on the front line and is actually just characterises what people's general experiences are when Um, meeting with mental health services with a PD label that actually there needs to be more a sort of evidence of a root and branch change coming in the future and that's what people uh, that's what I saw people expressing I thought quite reasonably because it's one thing to apologize it's another thing to actually take what you've learned from that and go in and actually affect change and say well how did it come to us having this advert and having this course which as far as I understand it was being run by someone who's a researcher and a on consultant in forensic psychiatry working with male sex offenders which actually for the vast majority of people who've been given a pd label is completely irrelevant yeah, so i'm yeah. not quite sure why they were providing training to general adult uh, psychiatrists yeah. but that's you know that's right, by the vibe right. that's a question for the royal college of psychiatrists not me um but what i saw was people saying this you know apology an apology is one thing but what are you going to do next basically yeah. Which I think is quite legitimate, yeah. yeah. Um, And then somebody else picked this up and said, "Oh, I can't believe the aggressive replies that he's been getting," and said that you know, I suppose it takes a certain level of emotional maturity to accept an apology, which is, you know, in and of itself actually demonstrating the disdain, the dismissiveness you know it, it's basically the implication that actually these people who are not just going oh yeah thank you you've apologized that it's all fine now actually you know do you not does it not take some level of emotional maturity to engage in a more critical discussion I mean, I- and not just go oh yeah that's fine because I think and I think that is and it's sort of missing the whole point because the point is that people were upset by this because it is demonstrative of a general attitude that runs through a lot of services and it is there every day for people trying to seek help. It is not a one-off mistake. It's not a rogue element. It is the reality of trying to seek services with this label, or as even in my case, you, you can't get rid of it. You literally can't get rid of it because once it's there, people will go looking people for will it. People go
1: looking under to, your rugs, yeah. So,
2: yeah, exactly. And this is despite having, you know, extensive stuff in my notes and letters saying that I do not meet the criteria for this, meet criteria for other things, um, but it's like, okay, right, well, you know, we don't, basically, you're not, I, I think what I struggle with is that if you are not um fawningly grateful yeah, yeah. for whatever random crap <clears throat> a mental health service throws at you, then it's seen as they start looking they start talking about oh, it being personality or well,
1: you're a bad patient as then, to, aren't you? Like, yeah.
2: yeah exactly you're, you're you don't fit the good patient role either if you're not deemed to be so out of touch with reality that you're not really you can't be held responsible for what you're doing um and but you're not deemed to be like properly depressed yeah. then if you're not basically you're not doing it right then they will go that then this is what starts to come up so basically, um, you know, don't have an opinion. Don't.
1: Yeah, I've yeah. been
2: using mental health services on and off for over 20 years, and I run a mental health service professionally. So, yes, actually coming at me with really basic skills booklets is probably not going to no, do no, much for uh, me because I kind of know what helps me and what doesn't. And by the time I get to actually seeking help, it's a lot more drastic it than is.
1: that. A one-size-fits-all or fits-none all, all fits approach, isn't it?
2: Yeah, uh, I think... It's also, you know, when someone's telling you, like, like, I literally couldn't walk, I couldn't read, I couldn't speak properly. And I got given a 50 page booklet of of basically sort of bastardized DBT skills oh, right. to, to learn and think about in a crisis. And I was basically trying, I was going out of the house in a dissociative state and then like wandering down to the river and come, or like getting stuck next to Joel Carriageway in the middle of the night in my, oh, my pajamas. God. um, And I, you know one one team advised my husband to like put away all the house keys so I couldn't get out of the house and then this other team came and said oh no you need to take responsibility for yourself give her back all the keys my husband was like no <laughs> <laughs> um, So, but you know and like I was I was I actually did I was trying to bargain with myself and be like right I'll go out but I'll call somebody and I was speaking to the crisis line and I got stuck like I couldn't speak and I couldn't walk and they were just like well, if you're not going to talk to us we're going to hang up phone us back in 10 minutes when oh you can the old
1: you're not engaging with services approach and
2: i was like i've literally frozen up and i managed to message it was the middle of the night and i messaged a friend who i knew has quite anti social hours and she happened to be awake and she phoned and i just said like i can't speak and so she phoned me and talked to me until i was a bit more able to engage but i was like they literally just left me on the side of the dual carriage with my pjs in the middle of the night because you're not engaging. Fucking and I, I just it's, it's just, like I would never like like I said, I run a service as support service myself. And I know it can be done differently, and I know it can be more personalized. And I know that actually just being compassionate and kind to people goes an incredibly long way. And that is usually all I'm ever looking for, for someone to hold my hand and go, Well, this is really shit, but I will sit with you and let it be shit and see what else I can do you know there's oh, So, so it's not it is not so difficult. is this
1: prejudice it is stigma ignorance or, 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 what do you think
2: it is I genuinely don't know I think it's a mixture um I don't know how people are trained um I don't know quite what goes into the training but my strong experience is this has been particularly of crisis services i have to say that i have a sort of community care coordinator who is fab and she doesn't pretend to know stuff she doesn't know she doesn't she just normally goes i'm not going to tell you what to do because you already know yes, this i'm right. not going to suggest something that so she's very comfortable in what she doesn't doesn't know and sees it as very collaborative and she's like okay let's see what we can sort out this is what i'm going to suggest to you but you can take or leave it Um. But my experience, especially with crisis services, has been that they are very rigid. That there is only one way that they will approach things, and if you are not willing or able to engage with that, then there, are, then the problem lies with you. And to me, that speaks to an insecurity about those right, that skills right, and knowledge. Right. That there's something about, like you know, oh, well, it's 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 so rigid. no one's allowed to question it and i'm like if you're not allowed to question it then to me that usually speaks to i mean i know sometimes when i'm a bit like that it's because i'm not completely sure about it or i'm not i don't feel secure in my knowledge and like even literally my husband asked the crisis what what do you do and they got the woman got really defensive and basically shouted at him and said you're being very dismissive of my team and he's like no no, i'm asking like what's your role like what do you do and she couldn't answer the question which is quite so instead of saying this is um, what we do
1: doing, these are these what our plans are, she mm. got defensive and said, "How dare you? You you you, you I, question yeah.
2: what our team is yeah. for? You know." And I, I think I think what I find most worrying was about this like complete lack of ability to engage with suicidality and this loss of functioning to the point where like I like I said I couldn't walk properly like to the point where my GP had referred me to a neurologist. Um, I couldn't really, I couldn't speak, I couldn't communicate very well, I couldn't read, all of which is extremely unusual yeah. for me. And there's symptomatic of being really unwell. Um, and yet, there is none of that was taken into account. So it was almost like once that label is there somewhere in your notes, nothing that you're doing yeah, yeah. can yeah. can be
1: superseded. anything yeah, other yeah. than
2: part of this diagnosis. And I mean, like, I, my most extreme example of that is about 15 years yeah. ago. Um, I started to get quite breathless. Right. So I was, if I was walked upstairs, stairs, walked up a hill, I was getting quite breathless. And I um, saw several different um, doctors, like hours during the day. Um, and one of them even told me, "You're just anxious. There's no cure for BPD."
1: Go. So you're breathless, and you're going up and downstairs, and it, you're told. That there's no cure for BPT, go home? Yes. Right, okay.
2: Um, And then I basically, I got to a point where I literally couldn't stand up without passing out. Um, And my flatmate phoned for an ambulance and I actually had um, pulmonary embolism, like some blood clots in both my lungs. Is that a symptom of BPD? Not that I'm aware
1: of, no. So so instead of looking at your, instead of looking at you as a human being, and looking at your symptom, your actual physical symptoms, so, somebody mm-hmm. somewhere went. Well, this is this is clear uh, evidence of somebody BPDing all over the place. Sorry, mm-hmm. I interrupted you. You so. No, no, that's that's okay. So it's, you went um, to hospital okay. again, and
2: yeah. So I mean, this was quite a long time ago, and obviously now that wouldn't happen because I'd be able to say I had a problem embolism in the past. Yeah, you know, check for that. Um, but at the time, you know, it was pretty terrifying. Like I literally could have died um because everybody was like oh breathless because you're anxious and i'm like but why is it only happening when i'm climbing stairs i'm walking up hills and it was a very odd presentation because normally they come on very acutely and then you're suddenly incredibly breathless whereas mine got gradually worse and worse but it was you know when the ambulance crew arrived they were like you've got blue nails this is obviously there's obviously something really physiological going on so they were you know um and once you know once i got to the hospital people were actually looking at why i was not oxygenating properly they found the you know they were they find the reason really quickly but i think that's you know that was really actually really terrifying and i think that's what really worries me about in the past year is like that i've been really unwell and yes it was it was um sort of was my mental health but there was just from the crisis services there was just no attempt to look at anything other than oh you're just being a you're it's it's a BPT thing when like I said that actually technically been taken, that had actually technically been rescinded and you're just a bit pants at being an adult. And now that I'm out of it, it was it was so physical and so physiological. And I do think it was medication that resolved yeah, it yeah, yeah. in the end. And I think like what happened ultimately what happened was that I was admitted to hospital and the doctor in the hospital went, This is not you know I was told that you were like a classic EUPD presentation and you're what? not not I think even if I was it, it is not it, there's no the, the point to me is not that this label had been removed and that I shouldn't be treated like that because I haven't got that label it's just that nobody should yes, be treated like yes, that and so yes. all yeah. I almost feel like I've betrayed people a little bit by having this label removed because I've done quite a lot of work in this area trying to improve things and the bottom line to me is it's not about saying, "Oh, I'm better than that. I don't have that label anymore." It's that actually, no one should be treated like that, and nobody should have this sort of overshadowing. And actually, if you're distressed and things are difficult, then they are,
1: but, you know. But, but this is rife in in in, in services, isn't it? This this diagnostic mm. overshadowing is is that people don't look at somebody's physical symptoms because they they have, and it, I, I'm I'm sure it's it's very often a label of uh, personality disorder that's been slapped mm. on them. It's it's gobsmacking. We we touched earlier on um, the uh, knowledge and understanding framework. New workers coming in uh, as a kind of we, why why do you think th- th- these new workers are coming into the NHS? And can you say a little bit about them?
2: Do you mean like pure? Yeah yeah uh,
1: peer, uh, peer peer uh, workers uh, senior peer workers so you know that that kind of thing.
2: I mean I think there's been a lot of really good work to try and involve, include peer support within the NHS but um and I think there's been a lot of push for people in these roles and in other roles that actually these people people in these roles should not be at like band two or three it's a really specialist yeah, yeah. role um I'm not sure, I don't know why that like I guess there's like some there's an initiative and there's suddenly really funding available for it but i just i'm very wary i think there's there's a sort of there's something very valuable and very special about organic peer support yeah. and i'm not saying that these peer support rules aren't useful i think they're really valuable and i know a number of people doing them and i think they're amazing they're not the same thing um and i think it has something that's a bit more organic yeah, yeah. and i think you know when you try to harness something like that and sort of institutionalize it it inevitably changes. Um, And I think that often there's not the infrastructure or the support or the thought about the fact that if somebody is working as a peer support worker, they're by definition drawing on their own potentially really traumatic and difficult experiences every day to do their job. And is the infrastructure and the supervision there to support them? There's also, I guess, probably an expectation that people doing that are like, well, and actually, I'm not allowed to get That's ill right. or they you, sort of failed somehow. You've
1: recovered. You have to be... Your lived experience is only valid in so much as mm. you you are now well <laughs> and you're you, we can welcome you now into the fold of the NHS because you're no longer a whack job.
2: Yeah, abso- yeah absolutely. And I think, you know, one experience I've had of, of that was... Um, sort of contributing to nice guidelines around self-harm and yeah i went in my professional yeah, capacity yes. as the director of a self-harm support charity um but i did say um you know i do have some personal experience as well to contribute to this and there was a point at which there was a discussion about you know involve uh, lay people and you know user involvement and that kind of thing and i actually said you know to be honest you know i'm here in my professional capacity but um being in this space with lots of people in sort of professional roles who in another situation could be like assessing me and making all kinds of decisions about me it's you know it's actually quite intimidating and you might want to think about that and one of the people running it immediately went well I think we offer a really nice welcoming environment and I just felt incredibly shut down Um, and I was like that's literally exactly what I mean is that if you say coming having to travel like Three hours from my home to a completely different city and um, find out on my find this place on my own go into a room where I know nobody most of whom are professionals yeah. and talk about stuff that impacts on me both personally and professionally um, and I say I'm finding this a bit intimidating and I get told it's not it's really nice and welcoming yeah, yeah. it's like yeah kind of proving my point there like you're not thinking about how this might impact and I find that this is what I do find quite frustrating is that you know, within sort of involvement and research as well, there's this kind of, everyone will sit in a room and discuss, why I wonder why we can't reach these people who are hard to reach. And it's like, well, leave the room, <laughs> try going somewhere else. Don't expect them to come to yeah, you yeah. in these institutional places, institutional buildings, and talk about really yeah, difficult yeah. stuff that is very personal to them, that to everyone else is, prof- is, is, about, is a sort of professional consideration, yeah, yeah. and then go home with no support. I'm like I'm not surprised they don't come to you anymore. And to be honest, like I've been so well in the last year that there are a few things that I've stepped back sure. from um, in my professional life that I'm not going to pick up again because I just because the toll that they take it's on too me, destructive. Even doing them as yeah. fresh, it's just too distress it's too distressing and too yeah. upsetting yeah. and too frustrating to sit in those spaces. And that's with my prof- and that's me being able to put my professional hat on. But I just can't do it anymore. i literally run out of whatever it is like you know anger and it can only take you so far and when you you know so what's that thing what's the definition of madness like doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result and that i feel like that is the space that a lot of this stuff sits in after 16 years
1: of doing this you're thinking we're
2: it's like what what change can i affect and i have to think about from the point of view of my own like mental health but also the point of view of my organization where can I make an effect the most sure, difference sure. um you know and I think that's I think that's what I find very frustrating professionally is that I know that support can be delivered differently because that is what my organization
1: yeah, does yeah
2: but we are seen as third sector tinkering around the edges rather than having a specialism and get told there's no evidence base but how do we get funded to do research into what we do? How do we create that evidence base without a push from people in those more privileged positions? But, but there's no it.
1: evidence base for uh, using the label of borderline personality disorder it is both unreliable and lacking in validity. And, and yet we, we, it's, it's entrenched in the new ICD-11 um just Mm -hmm. and there's i mean
2: there's no evidence base for treating people with disdain contempt and hostility as far as i am aware but people still do it all the time very consistently (laughs) i suppose that's the only thing that is at least you know what you're getting out of some of those services if they are all treating yeah
1: consistency yeah yeah um just going back to the the cuff training and and i've got to admit i've Mm -hmm. got a i've got a, a horse in this race you know when 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 I uh, applied, I was, I was gobsmacked when I, um, I mentioned to the the, the person, the, the contact person who was a clinical psychologist, uh, and I said, look, you're, you're going to be employing crazy people. Uh, what what mm-hmm. reasonable adjustments are you going to make? And it was as if...
2: Yeah, that seems like a yeah. sensible question. It was like
1: I'd asked uh, to accompany me to the moon on a unicycle. Mm-hmm. It, it was... It, it really felt like if I'd been a wheelchair user, she would have said to me, yeah, um, well, come back when you can climb 15 flights of stairs and and then we'll we'll welcome mm-hmm. you in. I mean, her, her response was, um, well, obviously, you know, you, you'll have to speak with occupational health. I think, like, no, no, I won't need to speak to occupational health. I need to talk about reasonable adjustments. But, but so... If this is a job that is that is has at its front and centre people with a lived experience and they're not valuing that lived experience, we're fucked.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think, again, like I said, I, I know it can be done differently. Yeah. Um, You know, the example I always hold up is the Scottish Recovery Network, which is an amazing yeah, organisation yeah. that is really almost completely um, lived experience led and it's really well structured to work with it sees it as, it sees it as such a core yeah, principle yeah, that that's yeah. how the, the organization is structured around it but even in my own organization we we have a lived experience led service and everyone involved in that from myself down has got some level of personal experience around um self-injury and you know we we built the service around that fact that that was going to involve a sort of certain level of emotional labor from the people working on it that perhaps wouldn't exist in other roles. Yeah. And so, you know, so we we asked about it in the, um, as part of the interview, we, off, we asked people before the interview, do you need any adjustments for the interview? And then whatever people asked for, we just applied to everybody right, so that it was right. a completely level playing field. So it's just things like people, you know, wanted like to bring notes or to have the questions in advance. So all stuff that's completely due, yeah, you know really yeah, not yeah. complicated stuff. So whatever anyone asked for, we just offered it to everybody. Um, And then that was a core part of the training, talking about, you know, where's the limit of bringing your own stuff and what do you do if it gets too much and if people are asking questions, you're asking really personal questions and, um, you know, group and individual supervision is built into the roles, um, plus a lot of working as a team, so there's a lot of chance for like discussion and bouncing things off and, you know, people have been ill and had to take time off and come back to the role and stuff. And I'm not saying we're perfect and I'm not saying we're doing it right because there's always room for improvement and there's always... But to me, asking about reasonable adjustments is just part yeah, of recruitment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and especially if you're asking for a specific lived experience, I think, again, there's there's this kind of concept that mental illness isn't a disability, which is total yeah, bollocks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a frame it, of you know, mind, just, yeah. Yeah, that it's just not seen as something that's, you know, people just don't think about it, and like you said, there's an expectation of being recovered, and recovered means having no issues, and never struggling, and and that there is no, that if you have a mental health problem, you wouldn't have any sort of physical health issues,
0: yeah, yeah, or you yeah. can be disabled in another yeah, way,
2: yeah. you know, so, and there's also, I think people, I, I try really hard if people want reasonable adjustments, but I just I ask, ask everybody, and I I say, and I don't ask them to, like, justify it or say I need this because I have this yeah, condition. Yeah. It's more like I struggle with this, and therefore I'll need this. Right, right. And if it's possible, we'll do it. I'm not. It's not actually any of my no, business no. why somebody might need whatever. Yeah, so I, I'll, you know, I'll, whatever
1: I'll be needing like, a letter difference. from your GP to. What, yeah, exactly to like prove yeah, it. Yeah, you know, yeah.
2: it's. I just I I, I think like. You know like i said earlier there's a lot of lack of thought that goes around involvement co-production this kind of stuff and that's exactly the type of stuff that it is not thought about from asking people to stump up their own travel expenses and then paying them back afterwards yeah, which yeah. might not even be possible depending on what level living from sure, your sure. own it's Ex- have you know i've seen people be turned down to ask to bring a pa to meetings which to me seems like an obvious adjustment really? um things like that so it's You know, I think there's a complete lack of thought around what involvement doesn't just mean bringing in one or two other people who happen to be happy to acknowledge that they've had a particular label slapped on them. And if you don't think about adjustments and you don't think about how to level that space, then you will by default only get a very small proportion of people. who can cope with that environment and are willing to do it and i think that what happens is a lot of people get quite exploited and eventually like me they just get fed up and they're like i'm done i'm not doing it anymore i cannot and i know i know quite a lot of people who've reached that point and then you sort of see a fresh batch of people who are really keen to change things and really basically offering themselves up on a plate to do what you will no longer do
1: yeah
2: and you and you kind of think it it, like it's not for me to tell anyone else what to do is you know it is a very personal decision but it also means that you that there is no leverage to say things need to change because people will go well there's a whole bunch of people willing to do this you're like but what about the people who are burned out after 10 years of this and saying that this isn't okay you know it's just oh there's crappy to bring in a new wave of people who will do that until they until they they too get cheated and going on here a
1: lot like how much can you demonstrate that you're like us, the the corp, the corporate mm, mm. Uh, NHS? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much can you deny your craziness that we're asking you to demonstrate that you have? But how much can you deny yeah. it in your in the workplace? How much can you, so you 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 to remove that experience and, and, and make it into a, into a presentation? So that part of you is a presentation. So it's not real.
2: Yeah, that's that's palatable. Yeah and like yeah has a nice recovery story yeah. and isn't too negative and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah all of that and just yeah like like package it up in such a way that we find it presentable and acceptable and yet, yeah, a lot of involvement type opportunities say that if you've been out of services for more than two years then you can't do yeah. it so that you have to right, have a very right. specific experience of a specific service right. and I think as a lot of people point out what if you were never able to access that service. Surely those people need to be heard from almost more than the pe- anyone else. Like if you fell in the gap between various services, right. then you will never apparently be able to be involved do do certain types of involvement because it is dependent on accessing a specific type of service. And, and surely we need to hear from people who can't access yeah. anything.
1: Yeah, people who just get the, the label and it's like fire and forget. So. Okay, I, and, and, and I think I know the answer from you here, and, and it's, it's really sad, but um, it, you're, you're, I think effectively you're, you're saying your future in this, whatever this is, is is non-existent. You've had enough. You're walking away from it. It's, it's ridiculous. But what, what do you think we as a community could do to change, to affect change?
2: really hard Um I, I've seen people sort of suggesting actually literally a boycott of involvement and saying if you it's I think one thing that we could do is actually and the thing is that like there's an organization NSUN
1: right.
2: who national survivor um I can't remember survivor and user or service user right, network right. who are really great at pushing this agenda um and I think I, I think they've already done this about actually um, having a sort of set of parameters of what if you were wanting to do have people with lived experience involved in whatever you're doing then you need to and um, these are the things you need to do yeah. and the things you need to consider right. so I suppose one thing that we could be doing is actually promoting helping to promote those and if someone says oh there's an involvement opportunity you say have you seen these are you abiding by yeah, these yeah
1: yeah
2: if you're not could you rescind this opportunity until and you've got this look. stuff in yeah, place,
1: yeah.
2: and actually actually really kind of choose one or two really key things and like batter them, yeah, at, yeah. you know, at, at these opportunities and things like that. So that's that's one thing I guess that we could do. I think what I would love to see is actually, and um, it's I don't know. It would be nice if you didn't have to do it this way, but actually. Um, sort of i guess support perhaps from researchers to actually to research like user-led alternatives so that there is an evidence yeah, base.
1: yeah.
2: um i mean that's a, that's a really that's a big one and obviously that's contingent on so many other money. things that i think that's quite <laughs> quite difficult money yeah funding yeah, from yeah, different places yeah. and writing up in the right way that doesn't inherently change the core of what your service is and what you actually yeah offer yeah. um so it's i don't know but i think it's it's really hard because I think if if as a group every time there's an involvement opportunity there's a bunch of people spring up going have you adhered to these parameters that in itself can be seen as quite antagonistic yeah, but yeah. actually quite you don't usually achieve change if you without agitating to a certain degree no no I'm, 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 I'm,
1: they they seem to want change but they they, they want it in their terms they want uh, you you to come in as a different person mm-hmm. but 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 to fit in without yeah. friction yes um, yeah
2: and without getting upset without getting annoyed um and actually i think there has to be it's an emotive thing and there has to be space for that um and to me it's kind of like almost like a sort of ex i don't know if you've ever tried to make a complaint about the nhs and um, uh, that's an experience in and of itself right, i would recommend right, okay um so but what ten- my experience, and certainly from a lot of people I've spoken to, is that there tends to be a bit of a batten down the hatches and protect our own type All approach. Right. So like I said, with when I, uh, I mentioned earlier, I had this embolism um, in my 20s, and I did complain about that because I just thought it was really yeah, dangerous. And I thought yeah. if someone else was in that situation, they could have died. And what I was told was everything was clinically appropriate, and we hope you're better. And I pushed oh, okay, it, man. and I got the help of an advocate right. And it turned out they'd had an internal serious incident review and changed some of their policies, but but they weren't actually willing to tell me that. So there was, you know, so and I, well, yeah, it's really quite worrying to say the least. Um, But I think some of these, some of these involvement opportunities seem to me to just mirror that. Yeah, yeah that if you're in there and you're saying well actually this bad thing happened and this didn't there's a lot of kind of oh well it can't have been that. oh that was one experience and I hope you've had some other good experiences and there's not a lot of appetite or space for people to just sit and go well that's shit and it shouldn't have happened yeah, and yeah. to be honest one of the most healing experiences I've had therapeutically was with an NHS therapist who when I told her about some of the quite discriminatory stuff that happened in other services when that makes me really angry that should never have happened to you. You Know and the power of that sentence that someone said to me, like I don't know, like 12 15 years ago, has yeah, never left yeah. me because the fact that she was willing to say my colleagues should not have done yeah. that was incredibly powerful for me, and it just meant an enormous might It's like sort of, I guess, is the, the ultimate in validation, which is something you know, obviously, people talk about a lot in this area, but I feel like that complaints process, um. Sort of mirrors what often happens in these kind of spaces where like if you start to get really quite like oh this this is bad and it needs to change there's a sense of like oh but we've got to you know mitigate this a bit or be like not everybody's like that and it's like yeah I'm not saying everyone is like that, but I am saying that this has happened and this has happened to me and other people I know regularly enough to consider that it's probably quite embedded or it's quite problematic you know and sometimes you there's just stuff that you don't No, unless you see them from the perspective of the person using service as one example from when I was doing this collective advocacy was there was a community mental health team where a lot of bunch of people from that service told us that their doorbell wasn't working Um, and that they were getting letters saying that they hadn't turned up for appointments when they'd been standing outside for half an hour ringing the bell and hadn't been able to get into the building and of course because staff don't use the doorbell. (laughs) They did not know oh my God and to me that that is a tiny example of the real power of collective advocacy that actually you can find out that, like obviously people weren't were turning up and they were really distressed because they weren't getting their appointments and then they were being told, oh, well if you have three don't turn DNAs then you'll be stars. and they're like, I're well, I'm, not I'm
1: engaging <laughs> with services
2: or, and they said, you know, they were getting in if someone happened to walk past and see them outside. So it does beg the question: why didn't it occur to anyone? There might be a slight problem with the doorbell, but, but mean, to me, that is the power that it picks. That's up, so that you just bad. Don't know if you're running the service, that's so
0: bad it's hilariously so, bad.
2: It is hilarious, it, I, and uh, you know, if our service hadn't existed, then maybe that wouldn't have been picked up for a really have. long time, and people would have, uh, you know, people at real risk would have through cracks because of a doorbell not working and I think that to me that is the important thing is that it's a very small thing you've got to be willing to listen to that and go well I'm sure it's not, And rather than going well everyone's trying their best and it's not the fault of the doorbell it's like just get some new fucking batteries you know but it shows how important it is to really listen yeah. to what it is like from the side of the person using the service you cannot know and I say this you know in terms of running services myself you unless you're using it you do not know what it's like and you have to listen to all of that yes, you know yeah, all yeah. of it not suppose the, the good and the yeah. bad because you cannot you know you cannot get a full picture sure. you know to be honest like you know i defy anybody to try and get through, through You know NHS triage and admin type systems trying to actually access a service is extremely stressful extremely distressing and seems to me unnecessarily bureaucratic but I'm sure that the person at the other end of it like the community mental health team psychiatrist or or, um, care coordinator or wherever are not aware that you have had to be referred to like six different people and you know be assessed like six times and be bounced around between services before you get to them but actually if you don't know that then you might not know why the person in front of you is really withdrawn really
1: agitated because you're
2: there just trying to offer them support and they're like well how do i know you're not just gonna ask me to bear my soul and then refer me to somebody else
1: and yeah yeah, has, yeah, yeah or tell me i
2: don't meet the criteria this person has you dif- know. Uh,
1: difficulty with trust and uh, abandonment and uh, yeah
2: exactly exactly well actually they quite reasonably yeah, are like yeah. i am going to be weary until i know i'm going to get something out of this that's actually helpful right
1: so. bloody hell sounds like we've got a lot to do well sounds like i've got a lot to do you you've got you, you do what you do You, you know and carry on doing it you know uh i'm gonna say thank you for for that i think that's incredibly helpful um i i i yeah I, at the, at the moment i don't know what to do uh i i just want to raise awareness and i want to make mm. a noise and i want to as many people to hear this as 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 possible but other than that i'm 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 a bit stuck but i'm sure you know, with with some wise minds like yourself, I'll 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 put some cunning plans together and uh, yeah
2: yeah. I think okay. I I want to be more constructive, but I feel like I've spent fifteen plus years being
1: constructive,
2: yeah, yeah. and it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. And I'm not quite sure what next. And it, it feels like it needs something more radical, yeah. and there needs to be a serious examination and acknowledgement of emotional labour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think this is talked about more since, probably since becoming a parent because right. there's a lot of discussion around emotional labor and that women often do more of it but I think that it's True. really relevant True. to this as well that actually yes it can be um, you know you might be in a professional role there is an element of it but when you're talking about your own life yeah. it, you know there is more heavy lifting going on on that yeah. side um, and that is not acknowledged or thought about at the moment, or what the impact of that might no, be. No, not
1: at all, not at all. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm sure further down the line, I'm going to annoy the hell out of you and, and, and drag you onto a, a full Naomi podcast. That's that's.
0: Well, you're very that's, welcome. That's to all you. your
1: very own. But but thanks thanks so much for this. It, yeah, really useful. Thank you, Naomi. Bye for now.
0: Huge thanks to Naomi for not only giving up her time, but for talking so openly and candidly about what having a label of borderline personality disorder has meant for her. Even though I'd heard the story before, it's still absolutely shocking to hear how diagnostic overshadowing nearly killed my friend. How blue lips from a pulmonary embolism were ignored because the prejudice against people with the label of borderline personality disorder is so pervasive. There's no cure for BPD. Go home and have a bath. If this is how powerless someone who knows the system feels when confronted with this level of discrimination, what hope is there for the rest of us? Naomi is educated, eloquent, with a, a nimble and inquiring mind. So much so, she has a prominent place in my fantasy pub quiz team. To hear her so exasperated is incredibly hard. Her years of work, her research, her engagement can't be in vain, though. I feel a responsibility, a, a duty to become involved in something that can affect real and lasting change. The status quo is unacceptable. In the next, the third episode of this miniseries, I'll be speaking with Holly. I interviewed her a couple of years ago. Links in the blurb. Unsurprisingly, I talked to her about her experience of the, the very specific mental health stigma that's attached to a label of personality disorder. Until the next time, thanks for listening.